Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody done with your Christmas shopping? It's interesting, like, this season is so fascinating. We, um, and I'll share this a, a bit later, but um, understanding the meaning of this season, right? Really capturing the meaning of the season is a hard thing for us to, to do because I think we're so, uh, the further we get out from something, the further we, we uh, have distance and time from something, uh, the, the, the harder it is to really get back to its true meaning, get back to the heart of it, you know? I think all of us would say that, um, well, many of us would say that uh, the spirit of Christmas seems lost in our culture today, and and uh, and I wonder sometimes if we've lost the spirit of Christmas, or if we've lost the spirit of what we knew when we were kids, or or what exactly it is. I, I am uh, oddly looking forward to Christmas. I haven't in times past, and I think it's I think it's because. Um, really being able to recapture I did this last year in the Advent series where it was uh, the kind of the, the statement through that series was that the unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating, right? And so we examined Christmas and looked at it and it's uh, it really does uh, give you an excitement when you understand what it's all about. But I'm just rattling on right now about something. So um, so we're going to continue in our, our series here in uh, Genesis, Disorder and Man. And from the outset of this series, uh, we have been looking at Genesis with a desire not only to understand the text of Scripture, I apologize, not only to understand the text of Scripture, but also to provide answers in and for a skeptical age. We all know that we live in this world, right? And so these two pursuits, which is to interpret the text clearly and also to give answers for a skeptical age, these two pursuits go hand in hand in that um, we only serve to produce more skepticism when we misunderstand the scripture. We just create more problems when we misunderstand things. Um, I, I will say that as we go through this, that um, there is an element of our story, there is an element of, the, of the, the belief that we have that is fantastical, right? It's amazing. It's like, it's so unbelievable. And in that respect, you're not going to be able to convince a naturalistic world to just accept spiritual things. Sometimes you're just going to wrestle with it. And that's all there is to it, okay? But we shouldn't just, um, we shouldn't leave those stumbling blocks or those obstacles in people's way if we can remove them. And stumbling blocks and obstacles, by that I mean interpretation issues, right? So we've learned that arriving at a correct understanding is not such an easy task inside of this series, all the way back from the first leg of this series. Uh, it isn't just a matter of finding a good Bible translation, although this may be a good start. Uh, I recommend that you do find a good Bible translation, but I would recommend you find one for the, the reason that you're using it. So if you're, if you're buying a Bible just to read, I think there are great interpretations or great um, uh, Bible interpretations for that. I think if you're actually going to study, I think you need to choose certain uh, Bible translations, and I think you need to use tools, right? 
use tools. It's really important for you also to understand this, that the things that I'm sharing with you and the things that we're talking about on growing in the Word of God in a deeper level is not uh, some sort of modern-day Gnosticism or uh, secret hidden knowledge. The reason why I say that is because you can find these answers. Make sure you know the difference between hidden knowledge that only a select few can understand because they have some special relationship with God and things that you need to understand that take a little bit of work. <laughs> right? Because you have to dive or dig for things doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it's uh, hidden knowledge from you. So I just want to encourage you for this. So, so maybe finding a good Bible translation is a good thing for you to do. Um, in our case, in Genesis, right, when, when we are looking through this, we may, uh, we have to understand uh, a different perspective. So in the case of Genesis, we have to understand the perspective of Moses. We have to understand his audience. We have to understand the, the, the culture and the world of the ancient Near East. Uh, because if we don't, we're going to keep reading our ideas into it. Without these perspectives, we are relegated to a world of wrong albeit well-meaning, but wrong interpretations that, again, create issues for more and more skepticism, okay? How many of you, if it was your child, you would say, you know what, I know it's vague, and I know I don't have answers, but you're just going to have to accept what I want want you to accept. How many of you would, would settle for that kind of teaching for your kids? Amen. Yeah, exactly. Right. One. Right. But but we don't want to do that. Right. We don't want to accept that. Why would we accept it for our skeptical friends? Why would we accept that? Oh, I know, because it's a whole lot of work. That's why we accept it so often. It's a lot of work, and we just don't want to give our time to it, and so it becomes a challenge. I've quoted Matthew Peugeot several times in this series, and I wanted to uh, do that again today uh, as we deal with some of the controversial issues of Genesis, okay? So Matthew Peugeot writes this. He says, unlike modern science, uh, traditional cosmology did not attempt to describe reality in terms of atoms, energy, and mechanical causality. Instead, most ancient cultures perceived the world in terms of spiritual principles, such as angels, demons, and mysterious sea creatures at the edges of the world. So before attempting to interpret a book like Genesis, it is important to understand why our current worldview is so different from that of the past. And again, I set the stage for this, that a spiritual perspective is often asking the question, what does this mean? What is this story, what does this text mean, right? It's also asking, what truth does it embody, okay? What truth does this embody? A material perspective, and oftentimes a modern perspective, is asking the question, but how does it work, right? We just want to know how it works. Or we want to know how was it made, or what was it made of, rather, we, we want details on those things. And, and the ancient mind, uh, and especially a spiritual perspective, wasn't necessarily looking at those things. So when we engage in the task of rightly dividing ideas like the six days of creation or the Garden of Eden or the existence of a tree of life or the existence, again, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we really do need to start from a right perspective, 
Otherwise, we're going to misunderstand and misrepresent what God is actually saying and doing. And we're going to start believing the things that the skeptical world proves wrong at some point. And then we're going to have to pivot. And most likely, we pivot without an apology. The church is guilty of this a lot. We love to pivot and, and, and not say, yeah, we were just wrong. We don't like to admit we're wrong, <laughs> do we? Husbands? Anyway, okay, so, so, right? so we don't like to admit that we're wrong, and so it becomes a challenge. This is fitting for this Christmas uh, time, though, this series for this Christmas time, because um, just like Christmas, it requires gaining a right perspective, understanding the season uh, in the right way. Otherwise, it too slips into the realm of skepticism and nonsense. Last night, the girls and I watched this um, watched this show called um, A Boy Named Christmas, right? A Boy Named Christmas. I highly recommend the movie. It's fantastic, right? It's really fun, very creative. However, it completely misses the idea of Christmas, right? It actually establishes an idea that Christmas precedes Jesus, okay? And so what, what this was was this, uh, this amazing uh, uh, origin story kind of 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 uh santa claus or something like this right father christmas if you want to do that right and so um but here's the deal if we don't set this record straight if we don't celebrate it for what it is the world doesn't know what we believe they just believe that we believe that and our kids believe that we believe that too right so we've got to be careful with what we're doing. I'm not saying take all the fun out of Christmas and ruin all the stories. I like Frosty the Snowman. I mean, uh, I like melting him down into ice cubes. But anyway, I, so I, I like these stories. Some of them are very fun, right? But we've got to be careful not to lose the meaning of it. The same thing with the rest of the Bible. So where are we up to this point in the story? Well, up to this point, we've learned that Yahweh God created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who established the functionaries. What does that mean, Nathan? The stuff of the cosmos. He's also the one who gave functions to those functionaries. That is what they do. In this, we learn that God is a God of order. Right? God is a God of order. From the largest star to the smallest creature, God. Uh, God has created a universe according to a specific design, his design. However, his most interesting creation, his very own image bearers, we brought disorder to the game, right? And we did it a specific way, not because in one instance we did one thing wrong, but we tried to upend the most important element of God's system, this ordered system, and that is the element that establishes God as God and not us. Can you say this with me? I am not God. I am not God. Okay, that was the issue in the beginning, right? That, that's our issue. And when we assert ourselves as God, when we assert ourselves as ruler and authority, guess what gets messed up? The order. This is the problem in families when husbands and wives miss their point or children miss their place or, or whatever it is. We disrupt the order. 
We kind of put order and disorder only into the realm of sin and violation and doing something right or doing something wrong. But disorder is just not doing it according to the plan. Right? So God says, I'm God. You're my image bearers. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to share with you the knowledge of of what is good, what is not good, all of this stuff, but you have to trust me. And we didn't do that. And so over and over, as I shared last week, the the criticism in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3 specifically, is that we wanted to be like God. And that's what we were trying to overdo, overtake, right? To be like God. Instead of just trusting God. Now, is God likeness a wonderful thing to aspire to. Yes, just not Godness, right? You are not God. You don't get to take his place. Amen? Amen? Okay. So, so this, this idea of us creating disorder or trying to be like God and messing the whole system up is what scholars refer to as the fall. But the controversies in this story actually have already begun. Apart from Six days of creation, right? We know that that's a controversy. Whether or not these days are literal or they're figurative. We have an old earth. We have a young earth. We talked about um, uh, the things that we see inside of, uh, inside of the garden story, right? The placement of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. I've shared with you the, the uh, temple structure and the language that God puts something at the center of everything. And, and in the garden, he puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in, in the tabernacle, it was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was, this was the place where God's laws were, right? They were kept in this covenant uh, ark. And so, so we, have this, uh, we have this idea, though, that when we read the garden story, we go, why would God put that tree there? How many of you have asked that question? Why would God put that tree there, right? So, so we're, we deal with the controversy of the placement of the tree in the garden. Both Christian and skeptic alike ask those questions, right? What is God doing here? Is this a test? And so we wrestle with this. The controversy is, on one hand, yes, God is just testing humanity. How many of you have heard this argument? God wants to know who loves him. And so he gives you a test, and you respond. And if you respond in faith, that means you've exercised your free will, and you've chosen God. That is actually the primary or the the mainstay view of this idea. But it it doesn't quite make sense, because now it seems like God is tempting us. Or that God is establishing something in here to to kind of woo us to, or or, or potentially woo us to both sides. It actually makes uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil put in the garden to be an evil thing. Like God's like, aha, this is a dangerous tree and I want it to hurt you. That doesn't make sense. And nowhere in the Bible does it assert that the tree is evil. It possesses fruit or it produces fruit that, that gives you the knowledge of those things but it doesn't mean that it's evil. What is the importance of that? Well, it brings out controversy, and the controversy and and my personal view of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that this was a tree that was intended to be in the garden, that God intended to give us the fruit of as he saw fit, as he wanted to teach us wisdom and give us the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. But when we usurp it, when we take over, we have a problem. So the culture around us looks at it and goes, your God is really weird. He just puts a tree in the middle of the garden and he says, ha ha, I'm just going to see if you, you love me or not. 
And then you tell us that this whole thing is about grace. But it sounds like it's about works, right? So this is where controversy starts in these ideas. We also have the controversy of whether or not men and women are created eternal. And you guys know my view. I've shared this uh, in, in uh, the past weeks, right? And that is that we are not created eternal. It was capacity for eternity. God set before us a tree of life. What do we need that tree for if we're just eternal? And then people argue and they say, but our souls are eternal. And this is just ideas that we come up with over time and tradition that don't have any bearing in the text of Scripture. But they're wrestles, they're issues, right? So, so we go back and forth about these things. And then we get to some really, really challenging controversies, right? What about, what about the people of Genesis? And what about the ages of these people in Genesis? Do people, did people really live to be 900 years old? How many of you have wondered this question? Be honest with me. Like, are you serious? So Adam's 900 years old. Is that the truth of this whole situation? Or, or is there something more to this idea? And by the way, some double down and say, yes, absolutely, those ages are literal. And what do they do with it? That's where they derive the age of the earth. They, they track these things back. But is that what's going on? I want to I give you some challenge. I want to give you some thoughts about this. I, I've, it's, a, it's a bad day for you guys when Nathan walks up to the stage with four books. Okay? It's a, it's a bad, no, it's not a bad day. Anyway, I'm, I'm going uh, to keep it as simple as I possibly can. But I wanted to bring up books that I, I highly re- recommend you look at. I am not telling you you need to agree with these books. But I am telling you, you need to consider these ideas. And I think you need to consider them deeply because, especially those of you who have kids that are growing up, your kids are going to start asking these questions. And you are either going to answer their questions in a real way or you're going to keep propping up weird myths about flying Santa Clauses. At least that's the equivalent to them. And they're not going to believe a thing you say. They're not going to believe a thing you say. So this one, it's got a very controversial title to it, right? Misinterpreting Genesis, and I know that this is controversial just because of the very area we live in, right? Misinterpreting Genesis, how the Creation Museum misunderstands the ancient Near East context of the Bible. I would highly recommend you read this book. And I would not only recommend that you read the book, I'd recommend that you actually wrestle with the ideas in it. And not just go... I don't like this because it disagrees with me, right? So check this out. The patriarchs and these people of, their, uh, of these crazy ages. Um, interpreting long lifespans as literal generations, contradic- uh, little, literal, generates contradictions in the biblical narrative. This is what the author is saying. Scholar Craig Olson uh, wrote a proposal for a symbolic interpretation of the patriarchal lifespans. Now, some of this is going to be brand new to all of you, right? Brand new to some of you. And I encourage you to just kind of listen with an open mind. 
Olson's thesis presents all sorts of arguments demonstrating that a literal interpretation of the long lifespans in Genesis result in contradictions and inconsistencies in the biblical stories that are, in at least several cases, so glaring that it is difficult to imagine the authors of the Bible could have overlooked them. The fact that the biblical authors were not bothered by these blatant inconsistencies would seem to imply that they consciously created them and were therefore indifferent about their literal consistency. Consider these examples. Here's one. In Genesis 25, 8, we read, Abraham breathed his last and died at, the good, at, a, gold, at a good old age, an old man full of years. Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be described as having obtained fullness of age. Okay? Ah, there's an issue though. However, if the lifespan in Genesis 5 and 11 are literal, this passage is bizarre because Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandfather, Eber, was still alive and kicking at Abraham's death and even outlived him by, uh, at 464 years. Genesis chapter 11, 14 through 17. In fact, Abraham, who died in good old age full of years, still had a spry great, 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 great grandfather still living named Shaliah, along with his grandfather, grandfather Shem. Isn't that interesting? Right? He lived to be a good old age, yes, yet it wasn't as good old as those people, right? Second is a related point. If literal, these genealogies imply every one of the patriarchs born back to Noah lived at the same time as Abraham. And this is a fun challenge for you. This is strange because the Bible otherwise appears to treat these men like they were long dead by this time. Joshua 24.2 and 14-15 through 15 speaks of Abraham's ancestors have, having lived long ago, and claims they worshipped foreign gods. This would be an odd way of describing Abraham's contemporaries, and it seems unlikely that paganism would have crept into Noah's family line while survivors of the flood like Noah and his son Shem were still alive. Isn't that an interesting idea? But what we do is we just simply say, well, the Bible says they're hundreds of years old. Well, let's think about this for a little bit. Evidence for a symbolic, symbolic interpretation. The writer goes on. The long lifespans in Genesis are, uh, by arithmetic and by formula, uh, often symbolic, he says. In order to demonstrate this, I draw your attention to the genealogy in Genesis 5. Uh, in his book, he labels it figure 17. Here we are given 30 figures. I know these numbers look random when you are skimming over them in your Bible, but observe them closer here. They are all divisible by five or end with a two or a seven, with the single exception of Methuselah, whose age, came, uh, who, whose age can be derived by adding multiples of both five and seven. Okay? So think about this. The age of fatherhood of each of these people, Adam, 130 years old, Seth, 105 years old, Enosh, 90 years old, Kenan, 70 years old, Mahalalel, 65 years old, Jared, 162 years old, one of those twos, Enoch, 65 years old, Methuselah, 187 years old, one of the sevens. Sorry, guys, I'm just trying to make the microphone work. 
and it's not working for me. Anyway, Lamech, 182 years old. Noah, 500 years old. Remaining years lived after son's birth for each one of these, as I just listed, I'm not going to name the names again. 800 more years, 807 more years, 815 more years, 840 more years, 830 more years, 800 more years, 300 more years, 782 more years, 595 more years, and 450 years. Here's what's interesting about this, right? These sorts of statistics don't occur at random. That's not theological opinion, it's just math. The probability that the distribution of numbers in Genesis 5 represent an arithmetic natural dis- distribution that has been, calcul- has been calculated at 0.000000006% for that to happen. Now, that looks, you guys are looking at this going, Nathan, I did not come to math class today, and I am mad at you now, and you need to put your stupid books away, and whatever. That's fine. I understand this. I say all those things to give you a couple illustrations. How long did it take you and your wife or you and your husband to have kids? Do you think you could have done birth control for 130 years? The rhythm method, right? (laughs) Right? 105 years, 90 years, 70 years, 65 years? What is going on with these numbers? What is going on with this idea? And why is it that the Bible seems to communicate people died long ages ago, but then if we calculate these numbers the way we're doing, they lived at the same time? Why is this? Why does the Bible present Enoch at a lifespan of 365? Why? What is the point of that? Maybe there's something about the fullness of his life. Why is it that Methuselah, or rather uh, Lamech, dies at 777 years old? Is that accurate? Is it, is it some sort of godly thing? What is going on in this situation? If you want to continue to go on and parallel these things in very uh, uh, kind of uh, critical ways, then I would recommend that you go to the rest of the Bible, especially the book of Kings, for example, and follow the periods of reign of kings where they could have done the same thing in fives and sevens with twos and whatever it is, but they don't. It's absurdly random. 17 years, 3 years, 41 years, 2 years, 24 years, 7 days, 12 years, 22 years, 25 years. All of these things, they're just completely random. That is random. But what we don't have, it seems, in this is random ideas. Why do I bring this up? Because in an ancient mind, there were numbers given to people. There were numbers that were correlated or associated with things. There were uh, numbers that were attached to, say, the size of a building. Uh, For example, one ancient Near Eastern myth talks about... um, Well, not a myth, but uh, an ancient Near Eastern leader, Sargon. His temple was created at something like 16,000, an even number, 16,850 cubits. And it says in his writing, which is the number of my name, right? Was it really that this building was that big? There's no evidence that it was that big. As a matter of fact, we should push it a little bit further and make sure we know that other ancient writings of the same period recorded people's age in their mythology as just 70 and 80 years. What do we do with that? 
do we just go, this is just nonsense, Nathan. I hate this crap. We just throw this out, and those people are wrong, and Ken Ham is right. I don't know what you do with it. I don't know what you do with it. But what I would suggest is that you consider it. I would suggest that you think about differing arguments. Because when you start to look at the Bible in a critical way and you start to delve into it, I think you're going to find all kinds of answers that don't line up with the children's stories that you were told. It's my view of those ages that they aren't literal. I don't think that they were ever intended to be literal. But guess what? You can disagree with me and I can walk hand in hand with you. It's very true, right? What about... uh, Controversy like animal death prior to the fall. Animal death prior to the fall. I shared this with you last week. That, And, and just so everybody kind of takes a deep breath right now, all I'm doing is throwing out the controversies and just letting you deal with them, right? I'm not trying to tell you you're a fool or you're wrong or you're right or any of those things. I just want you to consider these things because it's important that you do. What about death prior to the fall? Do you know that the Bible only says that in result to the curse, death came to man? Do you know that? Do you know that we have concluded that death came to everything else because of that? It's just an assumption that we made. There's no express statement of that. Do you know that there is equally as much evidence that shoots back against the idea that man was vegetarian versus being full carnivores all the way from the beginning? There's as much evidence on both sides. This is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes it throws people for uh, a loop, as my dad would say. Throw you for a loop. But But the idea is that you have to consider it, right? Uh, this is another thing that Ben Stanhope deals with uh, in, this, in this book, which I would, again, recommend you deal with. Um, he talks about what the dinosaurs ate. He talks about the idea that... Um, let, me go, let, me, let me share with you the idea of how far this goes. We go so far with these ideas that we have now begun a new idea that was never and has never been asserted in human history that there were dinosaurs on the ark. That's how far you have to go with it if you're going to keep concluding some things. You have to be careful with these things because people are going to go, cool, T-Rex on the, on the ark with Noah. Sounds fun. Oh, but T-Rex was a vegetarian at the time. That makes no sense of a really big jaw and sharp, sharp, sharp teeth, right? Unless apples were hard at the time, right? So we got death prior to the fall. We've got things like that. Does that imply that it was wrong for things to die? We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that plant life died. It's a fact. It had to have. We were able to eat anything, right? What about the Nephilim? What about these crazy creatures that people don't understand. How many of you have heard of the Nephilim? The giants that roam the land. We walked in this morning and my brother and I were back there and we're talking and, and uh, somebody came up and said, there are giants in the land. <laughs> anyway, so I don't like that at all. Anyway, Mike Broussard. Anyway, okay, so, <laughs> so but right, like, uh, what, what do we do with the giants in the land? Do you know that there are three main interpretations of this? 
First interpretation, sons of God are those of Seth's line. Sons, uh, daughters of man are those of Cain's, Cain's offspring. And this is seen as an unholy union. There's some challenges with this, though. The challenges is it, are that there was no express prohibition on these two groups marrying each other. So why would that be the unholy union? It doesn't make sense, but it's a possible view. Second view is that the sons of God actually were referring to ancient kings who took any woman they wanted as their uh, wives, right? So the daughters of men became any woman that these ancient kings took. And so this is uh, supposedly what gives rise to uh, ideas of polygamy, although God is the one who gave rise to the idea. The third view, final view, by the way, this has, uh, this has actually become the majority view, and I'm not sure I agree. This is weird, but it's become the majority view. And, and you can find this. I encourage you to do this. Go onto YouTube and type in The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. And when you watch this documentary, which is good, it's about an hour long. There's another uh, uh, compliment to it called demons and angels but um, this final view is that the sons of God were actually angelic beings that took human form and the daughters of men are just what that says daughters of men and then it became unholy offspring and created giants in the land that's a fascinating idea isn't it right now I want you to try to go explain to your skeptical friends that what really happened were crazy, crazy angelic beings that mated with people and created giants. But if it's true, it doesn't matter. If it's true, it's going to be hard to believe. Some of the things we believe are fantastical, guys. Right? My goodness, why? So, so here, here's one of the things. When you're in an argument, when you're in a debate with somebody, if somebody forces the, 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 uh, the stage of the argument or forces the, 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 the playing field and, and says, this is how you have to argue, how many of you know you don't have to argue on that playing field? It's fascinating, isn't it? Right? You think you do because they told you you must play on this playing field. But you can actually go, that's not even the right playing field. So throw that down. And here's another playing field. Here's another way to look at it. This is the same way with these ideas. What happens is we pre we're presented with playing fields. In today's culture, we're presented with a naturalistic uh, a playing field. And the world says you must argue according to naturalism. And we look at them and go, God is spirit. <laughs> and they go, mm, we don't like this. Right? And therefore, we also don't like God. Well, fine, that's good for you, but it doesn't change truth. It doesn't change it. So, which view are you going to decide? Are you going to go with the, the Nephilim came from Seth and Cain's offspring? Or the Nephilim came from ancient kings who took women? I don't know why they just became giants all of a sudden, right? Or are you going to take it that it's angelic beings who mate with women? I don't know. Smile. There are some things to consider, right? What about this flood? What about the controversy of the flood? Is it a regional flood or is it a global flood? 
I want to give you some examples of why this matters, but I want to give you some examples of why it matters from the text of Scripture, okay? So let's start with Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. Genesis 6, 13, it says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, and I just want you to read it, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Okay, interesting. So, the destruction of humanity, if you think of the flood as a global flood, is all-encompassing, right? Because he destroyed all the earth. But, wait a second. That's, I'm about to destroy them, them, that's the people, with the earth. Did God destroy the earth? He didn't. Be careful with your literalism. Be careful with your obsessive need to look at the Bible through every lens of absolute literal understanding because God didn't crush the world, but he did destroy the world, right? <laughs> like, what, what are we supposed to conclude from this, right? It's important that you don't take these things absurdly literal or you're going to come into problems with your ideas. Let's move to the next passage in Genesis. Genesis 41, 57. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Was the famine severe in all the earth? And did literally all the earth come to Joseph? No. There's no way they crossed oceans to come to Egypt for food, right? But it says all the earth so it must be what it means when it says he flooded all the earth. All I'm saying, think long and hard about what the Bible actually says. Let's go to the next passage in Genesis. Now, these are in order, guys. Genesis 8, 5, and then we're going to go to the very next one. It's in sequential order in the text. Now, watch this. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So just tell me what happened right? The floodwaters are receding, and what became visible? Tops of the mountains. Now, just a couple verses later. By the way, I didn't change that. It's like verses 7 and 8. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Well, what the flip is it? Right? Are the mountains uncovered or is the water on all the surface of the earth? Do you see the point that I'm making? My, my point is, if you read it from one side, you're going to go, I know what it is. He covered everything. If you read it from a full perspective, you're going to have to consider more to what is actually being said. Okay? You're going to have to consider this. Let me give you a huge piece of evidence for why it might not have been a global flood. Let's look at the Psalms. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 8, and then we're going to hit you with verse 9. He established the earth upon its foundations. So what, what's this talking about? Creation, right? He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. That's awesome. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. So, so what was happening at this time? This whole thing was just water, right? Water, okay? 
At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. Now, hold on a second. So what just happened was that God created this whole thing, and water is covering everything. And what did he do? He separated the water from the dry land. We saw that in Genesis, didn't we? Now, look at verse 9. You set a boundary in creation that they may not pass over it so that they will not return to cover the earth. The flood makes God a liar. If the global flood is true, does that not contradict? Something to consider. Something to consider. Because here's what's going to happen. Somebody's going to go, but this is a psalm. And so we should take it poetically. Ha, fascinating. You're doing exactly what other scholars do when they're trying rightly to divide the word of God. Make sure you understand that that right there is a challenge for what you do. And you can't just go, no, uh right? You can't do it. You have to deal with the controversies. You have to wrestle with whether or not... Um, Two of literally every kind of animal are on the ark. You have to wrestle with this dinosaur question. You have to wrestle with all these views about Nephilim. You have to wrestle with the ideas of the people's ages in Genesis. You have to wrestle with inconsistencies and numbers of who dies in battles and all this other stuff. And also maintain that the scripture is inspired by God. And it's telling you the truth. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? There is a lot to consider with these things, including ideas on what God's eternal judgment is going to be. And I have floated this for two weeks now, and I am still not in a good place to just jump into hell right now, <laughs> literally and figuratively, right? Right? Some of you are like, some of you are like, based on your uh, views on the scripture, you can go to hell. Anyway, so, but, but... <laughs> But my, my, point, my point is this, guys. There is so much controversy in this. And we live in a skeptical world. And you really have to be careful not to just throw out ideas to people that are just fairy tale stories. If it is fantastical, then you should hold to it with everything you've got. Right? If that's true, hold to it. If it's not, why make your case harder? Have you ever thought about that? Why make your case harder? Why, why would you make your case harder? Is it just so you can say, but I believe what my grandma taught me? It's not worth it. It's not worth it at all, okay? So I want to challenge you, and I want to challenge you today to look at the very things that I've shared with you, to, uh, to face the controversy with eyes wide open, and then I want you to look at a bunch of books. And you don't... You don't have to do any dang thing I'm saying. But anyway, I want to give them to you so that I want to show them to you. <laughs> I pay too much money for my books to give them to you. But anyway, right? Um, uh, the church is paying for them, so in other words, you are. Anyway, so just messing with you. The first one, I want you to consider this book. It's not my highest on the priority list, but it's a really good book. And I think you should consider it. Misinterpreting Genesis, how the Creation Museum misunderstands the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. Number two would be the language of creation, cosmic symbolism in Genesis, a commentary 
by a man named Matthew Peugeot. Now, Matthew Peugeot is, um, I believe, Eastern Orthodox, uh, but a fascinating mind and philosopher and scholar and quite an amazing book. He is one of the most direct human beings you'll ever read, so he just kind of tells you what he thinks. He's not, he's not trying to, um, to do anything but establish his case, so it's pretty good there. And then the, the next two um, are definitely not the only two in this series, but this is a series called the Lost World series by uh, John Walton. And this one is called the Lost World of the Flood. The Lost World of the Flood. This is both written by John Walton and Tremper Longman III, and he's, that guy is amazing as well. And then the next one is the Lost World of Adam and Eve. The Lost World of Adam and Eve. I would recommend others like The Lost World of Genesis 1 so that you can understand the, the uh, cosmological arguments that are presented, presented out there and all of that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to embrace all of these issues with eyes wide open. I want you to really engage with them. I want you to look at the text of Scripture and I want you to not try to dig your heels in so quickly, okay? And by not digging your heels in so quickly... You won't assert something. Here's what's happened to me in my life many times, okay? I assert something. This is the way it is. And somebody comes back and goes, actually, that says the opposite of that. And I'm like, man, right? <laughs> and then I grumble to myself and then I change my opinion, okay? What is really a good thing to do, and I'm not suggesting that you don't have any assurance in your life at all, but what I am suggesting that you do is that you look at these things and you, and you study them and say, as far as I understand it, here's my view. Is that a good way to do it? As far as I understand it, here's how I see it. As far as I've studied, this is what makes the most sense to me, right? And that way, what will happen is it will open up a conversation, a dialogue, so that you can actually grow yourself. And you don't lock yourself into this high tower of, of stupidity, right, like I have done, and then it has to come crashing down, okay? So as far as I understand, and then you share those things with somebody, and then when it comes to the skeptical world that you might engage with, which I would argue you will engage with or you have already engaged with, I would encourage you to say, Here's what I believe, but I do want you to know that there are other views out there. Other views that you should probably consider before you just reject God completely. Before you throw him out, right? Because here is what we're all doing, and I just want this to be our piece of encouragement. We are all trying to figure out all these things about God, are we not? All of us want to grow and to learn. Okay, so as long as we're on that pursuit, as long as we're fighting that good fight of understanding, I think we're on a good path. I don't think the path you must be on is the path that says it can't be any other way. And if you think so, I'll burn you at the stake. I actually think Jesus would be opposed to that. <laughs> right. So, so interesting controversies, uh, interesting ideas. Uh, what we're going to do. What we're going to do moving forward is we're going to, we're going to jump next week and, and then Christmas Sunday. So we're just going to spend some time uh, basking in the season, kind of like just uh, immersing ourselves in the Christmas season. So both next week's message and the Christmas uh, worship celebration are all going to be geared. And then when we come back, we will launch into a much more multifaceted approach to the last leg of Genesis. And that is we get to jump into stories. 
we get to jump into a narrative that is unbelievable. And that is that we have God and order, right? We have order in man. And then we have disorder in man. And then we have God and reordering all things, right? And so you're going to hear from a lot of people in that series, which will be much joy to your ears, I'm sure. But you're, you're, going, to, you're going to hear from a lot of people as we walk through the remainder of Genesis. And we start seeing how God begins to build uh, a people and begins to set a message of hope that leads all the way for all of us, leads all the way to King Jesus, okay? That's what we're going to be doing when we jump in at the beginning of the year.